Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Before you get to the show, make sure you check out theringer.com for our extensive NBA playoff coverage leading up to the NBA Finals. Also look out for a 2019 NBA Draft Guide, which now features 50 of Kevin O'Connor's scouting reports. The Draft Guide has a first-round mock draft, big board rankings from our draft experts like Jonathan Charks and Danny Chow, and much more to come leading up to the draft itself on June 20th. Once again, check out The Ringer's 2019 NBA Draft Guide and all of our NBA coverage over on TheRinger.com. Welcome to The Dave Chang Show, part of The Ringer Podcast Network presented by Major Domo Media. This is the first of two episodes we're doing this week for a one-year anniversary celebration. Last week, we did a couple of interviews exploring the Idea Chef partnerships with Chad Robertson and Chris Bianco of the Manufactory in Los Angeles and the Chefs of King, a great restaurant in the West Village of New York City, Jess Shadbolt and Claire DeBoer. And this week, we got another kind of mini theme going on. We're going to talk about art. And I realize maybe this is the last thing you want to listen to. You want to know the best new restaurants, the coolest ingredients, and sort of more traditional culinary talk. But I think that one of the things that's missing in our industry is a better understanding of our industry. And I know that it can be repetitive as such, but I want to know more about art. And I want to know its relation to food and especially modern art. For the longest time, I just didn't get it. And I'd argue that I still don't get it. And it's been something I really tried to get a better grasp of because someone like Marcel Duchamp, who did the ready-mades and arguably has made one of the most iconic, most important pieces of work ever in the past hundred years, the conceptual urinal, which was essentially a urinal that was upside down with a signature of R.L. Mutt on it. And he called it art. And it's something I could never wrap my head around because I always compared great art to the great masters of old, the, the, the realists, the Italian Renaissance masters, so on and so forth. And, you know, I spent more and more time trying to appreciate it. And I just didn't have the grasp or the patience or, quite frankly, the empathy to understand it. And I, I really just looked at it like a dumbass. And I didn't quite understand modern art, quite frankly, until I better understood the culinary world when I did a deeper dive into what Ferran Adria did, and even to a lesser degree, Alain Brassard did with his food. But when I started to study very closely what Ferran was doing at El Bouilly, and he's been a figure that I've continued to talk about, not just myself, many other people have talked about because he's one of the greatest, if not the greatest chef of all time, I began to see what he was doing as my own knowledge and expertise in the culinary arts increased. I began to see better and more clearly what Fran was trying to do with his food. And because I saw that he was trying to see every angle possible when he was trying to express himself, that doing something that was an angle or a recipe that was more of an homage to France uh, wasn't enough for him. While it was important, he wanted to express the land of Rosa Spain, of Barcelona, of Spain in general, and the terroir and the land was not ever going to be sort of told through French techniques. And he spent essentially his lifetime trying to truly understand 
cooking techniques and the idea of creativity. And listen, I could go on and on and on, but effectively, I can understand Cubism when I understand what Ferran was doing with this food. And there's a lot of, I think, misunderstandings of what LBE was. At the end of the day, I think he simply asked, why do we do something? What is the reasoning for plating? Why do we use certain ingredients? And he started to see food in every kind of angle. It was multi-perspective. And he was trying to show that and choose the angle as to how the diner might perceive his food. And when that sort of became clear to me, I better began to understand someone like Picasso. And Pablo Picasso, arguably one of the greatest painters of all time, because he could do all the great Renaissance masters. He could do it all. And he found that he could no longer express himself in traditional painting methods. And Cubism was born out of this sort of frustration. And I could never really appreciate Cubism. And the same sort of my lack of understanding of sort of modern art is the same when I talk to someone and they don't understand certain restaurants or when another chef or another food person, they don't appreciate modern gastronomy. They don't love what Ferran did or Heston Blumenthal or Wiley Dufresne, so on and so forth. So I began to better understand that someone like Picasso was painting a subject from multiple angles simultaneously. You're seeing everything about a subject that Picasso wanted to emphasize. If he painted it from only one angle, you'd miss so much. And that one angle is sort of traditional two-perspective realism. And that just wasn't enough. He wanted us to see multiple perspectives at once and not to be limited to just one angle. And again, I may never understand that completely from an art perspective, but I can understand that when a chef wants to express themselves. And oftentimes it's never a perfect expression, right? Because you always have to explain your work. And someone like Ferran really broke new grounds for anyone that makes food today. So it might be obvious to a lot of people, but I always have to remind myself constantly because when I look at cubism today, I've really had sort of a eureka moment for myself that maybe that's how I should best understand the world today, that everyone has multiple viewpoints, that no one is really wrong. That's not necessarily true, but, you know, it takes some time to understand right and wrong viewpoints and that it's sort of this sort of pragmatic approach to understanding how there's multiple angles to look at something and that everyone's going to see what they want to see. And maybe though the fact is we live in a world of cubist understanding. If I sound like a pompous, self-righteous asshole, I apologize, but that's not what I'm trying to do. If a dumbass like me can learn to appreciate art and think that it makes my understanding of food better, then I'm happy to talk about it because I have never been one that really, truly appreciates anything modern in art. I wanted to understand more, and luckily this podcast lets me trick smart people into talking to me about what I want to talk about and teaching me things that I want to know more about. So a couple months ago, we talked to Jerry Saltz, the Pulitzer Prize winning art critic for New York Magazine. And I think it was one of the best pods we've ever done. And I actually ended up with way more questions than when I started. So I wanted to speak to someone that even Jerry admits is smarter than himself. And that's his wife, Roberta Smith. Roberta is the co-chief art critic of the New York Times. She lives and breathes art. She's been writing for the Times for almost three decades and has worked in some capacity in the world of art in New York City for much longer than that. 
And if you aren't familiar with her, you should just start reading all of her archives because I think that how she views the world and how she sort of really loves art with all her heart and tries to express the best possibilities of art in culture is like, is profound, quite frankly. And when I read it, I, I can imagine what food criticism could be like. And she's just incredibly on top of things. So she wrote a few things that we talk about in this pod. And I recommend that you read them yourselves before I even start. I, I think she wrote a great piece about Korean pottery in the year 2000 that was an exhibit in the Met. I'll let you guys read it if you so choose. And we do talk about it a little bit. And it gives you an insight if Roberta Smith can talk about Korean food, I mean, excuse me, I've already equated to Korean food, but Korean culture and how it was taken from Korea and pottery was sort of the highest form of their cultural achievement. And that story wasn't told. And she was telling that in the year 2000, which was not that long ago. And if you compare that artistic understanding of Korean pottery, and then you sort of overlap that with the American perspective of Korean food in food journalism and criticism, I have very little sort of, I wouldn't say patience. I'm just, we could have been understanding Korean food at a whole different level 20 years ago, but we weren't. And I know that people were trying, but if we can do it with art, we can certainly do it with food. And I think what I love most about Roberta is her sort of, she's driven to tell stories that are not being told in the world of art. So I'm not trying to say anything other than I want to talk to Roberta Smith, someone I really admire. She recently won a big award, the Leo and Dorothea Rapkin Foundation Lifetime Achievement Award given to art journalists and the world of art. And she gave away $50,000 to the Art for Justice Fund because she couldn't accept it. It's the kind of person she is. And you know, just this week, she wrote a great article about Jeff Koons, and it surprised me because I would assume that someone like Roberta Smith would not love Jeff Koons, and she completely fucking proved me wrong. So, again, I have a lot to learn, and that's why I'm doing this. I, I'm not going to tell you that I know anything other than I want to talk to great people like Roberta Smith. I will uh, stop talking. This has been a way too long introduction, but I wanted to preface there was a lot of sort of art talk in this. And if you're looking for recipes, this is not the podcast for you. That being said, this is Roberta Smith, my conversation with her. Thank you very much. You have all kinds of experiences, good and bad. And what people mostly don't have is learning how to pay attention to them and differentiate. And I think in some ways they do, but they're not conscious, you know? But if you want to love it, the point is, are you loving it because a lot of other people like it? Which I really can understand. I understand use. Mm. Or would you go out on a limb if everybody hated it and say, well, I think it's kind of good? I'm not sure. All I'm trying to look at these days is the usefulness of something. That's what I call use value. And how sort of ephemeral or arbitrary or how easy it is to change an opinion over time. That totally. nothing is truly permanent in terms of a belief. Well, I always quote Peter Sheldahl, who says, if your opinions aren't changing, you're dead. Mm. You know, a lot of things are in flux inside of us, and we're influenced by stuff, and we rethink things and question ourselves or question other things that are taken for granted by other people. So... You know, maybe if it were glaringly bad, no one would miss it, so that there's some kind of redemptive aspect to it. For instance, 
I'm trying to be less critical of things as a food snob, right? I have the luxury of eating at the best restaurants and being able to make great food myself. And I think I'm coming out of a period where I've privately sort of scoffed at the things that some people might eat at as, as, as like a, just not sensible or in good taste. And I've now realized that I might be the worst kind of snob out there because I'm not helping the situation. I'm only sort of throwing stones. For instance, if someone likes Outback Steakhouse, have you been to an Outback Steakhouse before? No. It's a chain steakhouse. If you tell sort of a bunch of food people that, hey, I really like Outback Steakhouse, they're going to laugh at you. Yeah. And I think I've probably been at that group that has laughed at someone that would have said, I like Outback Steakhouse. But people love it. For the most part, the average American, to me, genuinely thinks Outback Steakhouse is one of the best restaurant chains in the world. They don't even look at it as a chain. You get great meat of value. They're not even talking about the environmental impact or things like that. But if you grew up in a town where that was your only steakhouse, you're going to think that's the best steakhouse you've ever had. Right. And then you move to New York City, and then people will laugh at you. So I'm always trying to take that into consideration of when does art education become elitism then? I don't think it ever does. You know, because the more you look at art, the more you appreciate and the more you become aware of the complexity of your responses. And like I say, we live in a time when art has completely kind of spread out and merged with everything else. So that complicates things. And yet I also think that's kind of great. I mean, the cause painting getting 14 million this week is like, okay, anything that's popular can come to auction. It can be exploited by people who understand that it'll make a ton of money because they've been watching it off on the margins, getting more and more popular, and bam, there you have a $14 million record. But I don't know. It's so, so complicated. So to continue with your person who's grown up in the Midwest, as I did, they come to New York and they go to what? Gage and Tolner? That's not open anymore. Some of the steakhouses. They go to... uh Peter Luger's in Williamsburg. Peter Luger's, exactly. So do the scales fall from their eyes by eating that steak? If they do, then you have somebody who discovers a sensitivity, you know, who discovers their own ability to judge. And they have something in them. Or you could have somebody who just has a friend who's a complete foodie and just says, no, you can't, that's lousy, try this. You know, it has to be worked on. I think the thing that might, and tell me if I'm wrong, and I'm still working this out in my head from a food perspective, is that the word that I keep on thinking over and over in all facets of my life is empathy. So if I'm looking at the situation, what I need to do is try to put myself in that other person's shoes and just be patient or just not make a judgment. But you're in a career, and I know you've spoken about this, where we're unconsciously judging everything all the time. Yeah, I think we're total opinion machines that you don't do anything without making some kind of distinction, that without employing your what I call your critical faculty in some way. And like I'm intimidated by wine lists, do you know? And I'm perfectly confident of other of other opinions in food and in art. Well, I mean, but let me just be full disclosure here. You're talking to someone who eats individually wrapped slices of soy cheese. And I also have like three kinds of Parmesan in my refrigerator. Do you know? So you can have both these. uh, I don't know if that sounds like a contradiction to a foodie, but you have lots of different sides to your sensibility. And living, particularly living like you and I do, kind of obsessed with one thing, 
we become more and more aware of how multifaceted it is. Well, to be able to eat soy cheese and three kinds of parm, that just makes you human, quite frankly. Yeah, but that's what you're talking about with empathy. When you're thinking empathy, I'm thinking education, like self-education, education within some kind of a framework. I mean, people come out of completely deprived gastronomical situations, maybe that's not the right word, but and become great chefs. Right. Do you know, or musicians. I mean, talent will out. Talent comes with its own kind of determination. But I'm trying to wrestle with myself. How meaningful is it to judge something then if it's not useful then? You know, if I tell someone you're wrong for liking Outback Steakhouse without knowing anything about their background, and if someone genuinely loves it with all their heart. Well, you don't have to say you're wrong. You know, you could say... I know you love Outback Steakhouse, but believe me, there's stuff that's much better in this exact pinpoint of the eating world that you're thinking about. And it would blow your mind to have steak at this other place. Mm. I mean, a lot of Midwesterners probably think they're connoisseurs of steak, but quality will out. That is the way I feel, that, that really good things, just like really great talent, you know, they change people. What happens when that quality is different? from their sort of status quo or understanding of the norm? Because that's something you see in art all the time, right? How do you embrace the different when people are like, that's not good? That's not what I, you know, like I don't think a minimalist box is art. Or you just say, look, you're talking to a specialist here, an expert. I've concentrated on this stuff my whole life. I know a whole lot about it. And if you're not inspired enough by art, to kind of expand your field of vision and your knowledge, then fine, I get that. I know how this is going to look. I know that there's art that's much more accessible and that I also think is difficult and that we could, so let's go over and talk about that. And then I can talk about some of the things that are in the Judd, like specificity of materials is the same on a Judd as it is in an oil painting. And you're talking about Donald Judd, right. someone you've worked for. Yeah. So for a dummy like me, how do you summarize him and what you're talking about that real quickly? Well, his favorite word was specificity. And he was completely against the idea of an artwork that refers to anything outside itself, which some people take as a lack of content. It's not really. It's a lack of subject matter. It's not about. It's about what happens to you with the piece and what has been done with materials and color and how you can look at something like that and it gets more and more complicated in your eyes and consequently more complicated in your mind. You talked about something about Judd, and I don't think I've ever heard it in ways other than maybe like a philosophy class. And maybe it's like Descartes or Kant. It sounds like a priori knowledge, right? Like Probably, except I know almost nothing about philosophy, so I'm no help. But you're saying that like an artist can't enjoy something in and of itself. Or like someone needs reference to understand art, or he's trying to create something. He's not trying to tell a story. And I think a lot of people expect art to tell them a story that they can kind of talk out in their heads. And Judd is doing something that I think all art does, which is that it's basically beyond language, that the experience you have is very deep, it's in your body, and a lot of it that you're having, you don't, you don't even know how to bring it up to the surface to articulate it. So he sort of stripped everything away and said, this is a piece of space that I am encapsulating for you in your space, and you can see it measured and in a completely different way. Because he's completely about 
interested in the empty volume and, you know, that his pieces were hollow and that they were made of metal because you looked at metal and you knew it was thin. So there's this interior volume. But he wasn't going to go, you know, this is not about whatever. This is not about a person sitting in front of you whose inner life you want to try to penetrate. But if someone that is uneducated about art and they go to look at Donald Judd and is most of his stuff in Marfa or is it in museums? It's in museums and in Marfa. And you look at it and you're like, these are just boxes and simple things, it seems like. Yeah. That's how it starts. You have to go through the same thing with the Duchamp urinal. It has some ideas, but there's a famous story about Judd being down in Marfa and a Catholic priest comes through and looks all around, you know, like a few hours. And he comes back to Judd and he says, I see that you and I are in the same line of work. In other words, he saw a kind of spirituality to the quietude of Judd, the honesty of materials, you know, different kinds of things. And the frankness of Judd about his work, like you you could see how it was built if you looked at it long enough. So I'm going to assume then if I'm just someone, Joe Schmo, that doesn't understand anything about art and I go look at his sculptures and it's not compelling to me or just looks simple, but I'm probably going to assume without really knowing him or anything that he said or did that he was probably incredibly complex, highly intelligent, and a lot of thought to be able to distill whatever he was trying to do into something that looked incredibly simple. Well, I think probably once he hit on his idea, there was a lot of thought. But, you know, it's intuitive and kind of emotional and subjective the way anything else is. Judd started building reliefs on the wall, and they got thicker and thicker. And then all of a sudden, he looked at one of them sitting on the floor and thought, oh, this is where I need to be, on the floor. He did figure out how to go back to the wall with wall release, but that's him just trying to think, how can I get away from abstract expressionism? How can I make this physically interesting? You know, the way Pollock made painting physically different and interesting. That was what Judd wanted to do. And you're talking about trying to get away from whatever the is contemporary. In right. Art. And Judd had a very strict and I think kind of narrow view of that. What do you mean? Which is that he really thought history was great. And it was done. And he was, for example, appalled when he saw, like, you know, Bazalitz's wood sculpture, figurative sculpture. They're kind of these big, rough-hewn pieces of wood. You know, he thought, like, that's done. You can't go back to the figure now. And that was his point of pride. Like, I've done this. Carl Andre's done this. Richard Serra's done this. That's it, folks. We're going forward. He didn't really have any idea that, you know, it's very linear at that point. He didn't really have any idea that history is just crazy, that it's all over the place, and that it's incumbent upon an artist who wants to go back and use something, a figurative style, painting, whatever, to make it new in some way. And that can be done. So he would say no. Would the pattern that you see in Judd and, say, Duchamp with the urinal and the ready-mades that he made— Is that similar in all artists that are trying to rebel against the current form that they're working in? Well, at a certain point in the 70s or 80s, the current form was minimalism. And a lot of people wanted to rebel against that. So it's never fixed, you know. And Judd even said of Duchamp with the ready-mades, Judd said he invented fire, but he didn't do much with it. In other words, he just went on side of saying, this is art, this is art, this is art. Judd wanted to make something very self-evident that didn't look like art, that would challenge you. 
what is that in the artist? Because I'm always, I'm asking you these things again to have some relation to my industry and the chef world of how and why things are changing and why we're constantly pushing, not just because awards, but finding meaning in what we do and cook. How is it that these artists that are, what is driving them to say, this is not acceptable anymore? Well, it's certainly not lack of admiration for what they are talking about. It's just the sense that I have to do something different. Something different has to happen here. I can't just repeat these. Well, Nicole Eisenman is a really interesting painter. She's going to say, look, I can actually go back to Fauvism and German Expressionism, and I can use that in a new way in paint on canvas. And until you see, say, a show of hers, you don't believe it. But I was convinced when I—she had a show at Leo Koning. I can't remember the year, but a while back. You know, so then you think, okay, so Nicole has opened this can of worms. And a lot of artists have been working with that kind of permission that she gave, and and other painters as well. But there's so much figurative painting going on right now. It's like, you know, Judd would probably just shoot himself. It's like, you fools, you learn nothing, you know? But history really got undone after conceptual art. It just came apart. What's the reason for that? Because I feel like that's where we're, we might be at in food right now. No, I think you totally are. I was going to say that. Like how food has gone global and like what used to be kind of like street food is now considered critically. Food has gotten huge and diversified the way art has. But simultaneously become a monoculture. Well, you're going to have to tell me about that, but... Has that happened in art where people are doing the same thing, even though... No, I don't think so. I think you have a lot of different art worlds that are coexisting and that it's both incumbent upon you to understand how they simultaneously exist and within your own view to kind of find which is the bubble you most want to be in and, you know, can you cross over and come back or are you going to cross over and all of a sudden you'll be transformed and you'll just keep going and not ever come back to that bubble? You know, the whole idea that I think you and I have to understand is this, is there's constant growth. And there's constant change. And the change is often, you know, you can identify the change as being like, you can narrow it down and focus it on one person, but that's not really the case. I mean, you could talk about, who's the guy in Spain? Ferran Adria. Ferran Adria, sorry. No, sorry, no, no, Ferran. No. He's not the only one who's doing that, but he's the one who gets the most attention for it. And he, then He that, actually did it first. Yeah, okay. I take that back. But... I'm more interested in his influence than I am in actually eating that food, which I did one time, and how he just broke things down in a completely new way. I'm trying to remind my, the people that work for me, or even when I'm in conversation with the younger cooks, the influence of Ferran and how weirdly, even though he just retired like 10 years ago, it's already been lost. Well, that's also the way memory works. You know, that, that happens to artists. An artist has a retrospective at a museum, and it's sort of automatic that there's a kind of a 10-year period of quiet around that career. Things get overexposed, and people exist in the present in a way they have no idea of. I mean, when I was first in New York, part of the way I educated myself was, this was in 68, 69, I went back and read old art magazines, and I began to realize how quickly artists disappear. You know the dates of those magazines? Mm -mm. They're from the late 50s. Mm. It seemed like so long ago to me. So kids are going to say, no, that's old. You know, and then in about 20 years, somebody's going to say, this was really where it's at, and now I'm going to take off from here. 
like the human mind can only hold so much. And so things get forgotten. Your emphasis makes you ignore things. Your passion does. And then that alters. And then other people come along and they have different attention. And they're looking for new areas to work in. So all of a sudden, the Ferran influence area is is relatively unoccupied. Well, there's been a rejection towards Ferran, I would think, over the past 10 years. And it's been a movement towards, I hate to say the word, like naturalism. So if you put on a spectrum, Ferran being on the one end of excellence and uh, modern gastronomy. On the other end, you would have someone in France, his name is uh, Alain Passard, who is about pursuing perfection and purity in the most natural way possible. Both of them are after the same thing, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I think it's a battle between who's been the most influential. Well, that's going to be sorted out for n- numerous years in the, into the future. But the point that maybe you want, it's definitely like what I want, and it's kind of simple. I just want to be convinced. And if they can be miles apart aesthetically, these two points, and they're both convincing and have kind of an internal logic and provide an interesting experience, that's just back to me with my cheeses. Like, modernism is the idea that there's just one thing, and then there's the next thing, and there's the next thing after that. Right. But why is there the next thing? Right now, because that was the way things were seen. And it was seen in in a series of waves in terms of what was getting attention and what was getting validation. You know, so right up to conceptual art, you have this kind of concentration on these series of generations of mostly men. Well, was there other stuff going on during abstract expressionism? There sure was. There were people working small, people working geometrically, but all that stuff gets brushed aside while you have this moment of, oh, wow, this is new, this is amazing, do you know, and it just becomes dominant. And just don't, I mean, maybe someone, including myself, needs a definition or a better understanding of what conceptual art is, since it seems to be a relatively important thing. Oh, God. I'm going to just say, like, the first generation. Joseph Kasuth, John Baldessari. But what, what, what does it look like? Well, it looks like everything because it had no real material basis. It was really involved with narrative and involved with language, yet it often had interesting physical presentations. Lawrence Wiener, for example, would kind of paint these verbal conundra in really beautiful, you know, on the wall so that they were right there and the kind of great looking. And so you looked at them and then you read them and you thought, huh? Because it was always a kind of fragment. But conceptual artists were skeptical of the art object. They were skeptical of making things for the market. That was one of their first positions, which, you know, people started to buy them as much as anyone else. So we're at a stage in art where we're ready for a new chapter, you're saying? Well, I think the new chapter has been going on in the art world, and there are definitely different positions that are battling it out. I mean, I'm, I probably view it as quite conservative for being as interested in painting as I am, but it has a real continuity that fascinates me. If you go to shows, these big international exhibitions like the Venice Biennale or Guangzhou, or, you know, they're basically all over the world by now, you're probably not going to find much painting there because the curatorial class, what I would call the curatorial class, is not that interested. Unless you're like a painter who's an artist who's sort of been excluded from the main conversation, which is that you're maybe from outside the West, you're a woman, you're an artist of color. So there's a kind of way, I think too many things are determined by identity right now, but I just think that's it. What do you mean by 
determined well, by identity. Well, I think it's really important who made the art and whether they're white straight males or anything else. And what's expanding history right now is the fact that we're discovering that alongside all these movements that were mainly white straight males like abstract expressionism, there was all this stuff going on by others, by artists who did not qualify for that. So there was figurative painting, there was art about blackness, there was all kinds of work. So what what's happening is not like, okay, we're going to add this on and add this on. It's just like saying, okay, well, let's go back to this period. Let's go back to art in America in 1945 and really look without judgment, without looking for abstract expressionism. Let's really look at what's going on. So it's a rediscovery of the things that have been glossed over. Uh, yeah, I think it's a, and it's a recomplication, which I think is the reality. Do you follow baseball at all? Uh, a, little. a little bit. Tell me if this is a wrong analogy. Is this like when people during the Negro Baseball League era, the sports historians say like, no, maybe Mickey Mantle and Babe Ruth, they weren't the greatest baseball player ever. Maybe it was Satchel Paige. Maybe it was Jackie Robinson. They just didn't get... The same attention correct. or evaluation. No, I think it's totally true. I'm trying to imagine if I'm a regular listener to this, and we usually talk about food because Uh-oh. it's not like I understand much of what's Uh-oh. going on, and, and there's a lot of crazy references that if you're not... Uh, uh, again, I'm not an expert in any of this stuff, but I am talking to one. And the reason why I want to get deeper into your world and understand it is I am trying to always see different patterns outside of my own industry because it's been so insular that there's got to be some kind of uh, condition in us that allows us to sort of do the same thing in a variety of fields. And I've been really wrestling with this history of the new in food whether it's going all the way back to the spice trade and how people basically stole from India and to the merger of French cuisine from the Medici family to just food from the Muslim world. Everything came from somewhere. And then the past sort of 50, 60 years has been this almost like a Cold War arms race with who can do the coolest stuff as a chef from high-end dining. I think I understand it really well. I think I always see this sort of dialectic, fuck, I don't even know why I said that, but I guess it is, right? Where you have something that's popular and then the underground tries to take its place and it's this constant battle. Well, I would say, I would ask you two questions. First of all, I don't know the answer to this, but when was the first non-European cuisine restaurant, when did it get four stars in the New York Times? Is that an interesting date? Well, is that like Shunley Dynasty or something? It was a Shun. I don't know. I could be wrong, especially the New York Times. But a landmark review in American food history was when Ruth Reichel gave three stars to Han Maraan. Right. And people went apeshit. Right. Because they were like, how could this be? They don't, they're not serving. Well, that's much, unfortunately, that's much more recent than I would have thought. <laughs> right. Okay. My second question is, what about food trucks? Like in L.A.? Like, what about that kind of, the excitement that's around that? And, the, you know, that for me— We're already coming out of that right now. I know, but what you're coming out of then is a great broadening and diversification of how people are thinking about food, which I think is completely parallel to what's been happening with art. Right. You know, I don't know when you want to start it. I'll start mine at around 1970, with conceptual art, by the way, because it blasted object-making to heck, and people had to, like, think, well, I want to work with materials. How am I going to do this? And you exactly, know? there's a freedom now right? where you could be a narrative chef, you could be an ingredient-driven chef, you could do 
anything now. And it's total free-for-all, and it's very confusing. I think both for the chefs, Mm -hmm. for the younger generation trying to figure out what can they do and leave their mark. Mm -hmm. Because there's a general consensus, I think, of, well, everything's been done. What's the point? And then the critics have no idea because as a critic, you can't consume food from around the world like you could look at art in a day. And it's a very strange place. So I'm trying to just see how things might have happened and unfolded in art to better see where things might be going in food. And my weird conclusion right now in my total no homework analysis (laughs) is that art was way ahead of pretty much everything in culture forever. And now I continue to see in music, fashion, architecture, literature, but really, I guess, say food, uh, everything's sort of now on this sort of same part in this timeline where we're all in the same sort of mess of not being able to figure out anything anymore. Right. That made any sense whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, what's happened is a kind of democratization of the evidence and a kind of understanding that, you know, attention will be paid to all this stuff. You're not going to have this simple hierarchy. It's all going to be, you're going to have to make judgments maybe according to different standards. You're not going to have a single set of standards that determines quality, quote unquote. And I don't know, I'd, I'd be interesting to really go back because I think it's all sort of going on at the same time. I mean, you have Phil Glass doing minimalist music, so-called. At the same time, minimal sculpture is emerging or not too long after that. You know, and if you went to food, maybe at that point, which would be the late 60s, I don't know what you'd find, but you'd have to be able to, which isn't really possible, you'd have to be able to go back to the underground, to people who were like saying, I hate French cuisine. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm so tired of this. You know, there's got to be more. I mean, I I think I'd probably be squarely in that camp, and it's not that I hated French cuisine. I love it. It was done. This has been done. But there's more stories to be told. Exactly. Absolutely exactly. That's what makes this time great and confusing. And you just, the, the one thing we're not going back to, you can go back to every form of food, every form of art. We're not going back to this hierarchy. We're not going back to this linear view that one, one invention succeeds another invention because our idea of what is an invention has changed. Do you know? Like it's not strictly formal. And I don't know. I think it's an amazing time to be alive. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've thought that for a while. And I just, for me, it gets more and more amazing. I mean, it's just more complicated. There's more stuff to know about. You know what's amazing is we had, uh, you and Jerry came to Kawi for a soft opening. And I love the conversation we had. But one of the things that came up was trying to create a new sort of point of view to cook Korean food with our chef at mm-hmm. the restaurant, Unjo Park. And we got in a little bit of conversation about pottery. And Jerry sort of offhandedly quickly said, Roberta's spoken about this before, and I come home, and I I now have the internet where I can Google something that you mm. wrote in 2000, I think it was, right? About the, the Met having a Korean ceramics exhibit. Yeah. And I was like thinking about this, like, wait, I can talk to the critic who wrote something 20 years ago about something that didn't even happen in America, but happened almost like 700, 800 years ago. Right, it probably wasn't on view in its own gallery when that critic arrived in New York. Right. You know, so that's a development in the Met of consciousness affecting the Met and 
collecting more Korean art and saying, oh, yeah, we have quite a bit of this stuff. It really should have its own gallery. And I was reading this with my wife in bed. We were actually like moved to the point of like tears almost because we couldn't believe that someone was talking about this 20 years ago. Right? I was like, holy shit. Yeah, but, you know, for me, for that to have happened at the Met and to have that show to write about, which may have been one of its early shows in those galleries, it's this whole buildup of attention. You know, there are already collectors concentrating on Korean ceramics. Incredible knowledge about it in universities. And, you know, one of those collectors is helping the Met build its collection, probably. So it's not anything sudden. And it's for people saying, well, I know enough about Chinese ceramics. What about Japanese ceramics? And somebody will say, well, that's fine, but Japanese ceramics comes from Korean ceramics. Yes. What kind of attention have you given that? You know? And this is why I, I, I have to talk to you, right? Because these patterns that we're discussing, it's happening real time when you're saying, oh, the next thing in art or the next thing in culture is not revisionist history. It's just looking back and and reevaluating it. And, yeah, and if you're an artist, taking what you can use and what you think you can make new, you know? And that's happening in food right now. Right. So I have to be optimistic that <laughs> even though I'm a horrible pessimist, that that is actually a positive. And you are going to see new, I won't say new cuisines, new stories being told by different people that are not white, male, or American. And you're going to see the same old ingredients, if you, I mean, in a global sense, being used being kind of perfected or, or brought to a new level, and you're going to be seeing new things done with those same old ingredients. You know, that's just like, you could name, I don't know, what's the most widely used ingredient in the world? Salt? I doubt. Yeah. Any, well, well, black pepper. Yeah. But I was thinking of something more tangible, like grain or flour. Okay. Or, but We'll just look at bread. Bread okay. from around the world. Right. I'm a breadaholic, so let's everyone, go. Everyone makes the same thing. But there's really two inventions that change bread. One is the kind of oven. You have in the Middle East, uh, basically an oven in the hole. You put heat in an ambient surrounding in the hole, and then you have a traditional oven that we have today. And how that completely changed bread making to flatbreads and stuff that is more yeast-driven. And I think about that, and it hurts my head as to how something so simple could really Divide the world, essentially. Yeah, well, there's probably somebody writing this book right now. Right. You know, It's probably been written. <laughs> yeah, we just have, just have to hit our desks. But yeah, I mean, I, I would love somebody to talk to me for that, about that for a while so I could see, like, so what made it so that they were sitting still long enough to invent this thing? Okay, now what's the second one? Second one in, in terms of ingredients? In terms of bread. Well, that's pretty much it. It was a division with flatbread to what you see in... Uh, the Middle East to Asia, and then what you have that was born out of basically modern Europe. But isn't isn't yeast an important date too, as well as ovens? Well, sourdough, I think you could still cook, let, let me rephrase, you can still do yeasted breads in an underground oven. It's the kind, like you can't do laminated breads, you can't do volume bread, right? Mm -hmm. Like like a Pullman loaf, for instance. Mm -hmm. It's it's, But it also sort of dictates the kind of food you're going to eat it with as well. And a mm -hmm. lot of the flatbreads are more about stews or um, it's just a completely different way of eating. But you're using right. the same grains. Right. And the same concept of uh, of microbes to maybe, you know, have a yeast 
like, same chemicals. Yeah, it's the same process. Everyone's making the same. So that's my basically my current like take on food around the world is everyone's made the same thing, left to their own devices. Everyone wants something tasty, left to their own sort of geography. You can only make so many things. Right. I could be totally wrong, but. And that's a pessimistic view, or I guess that's optimistic. Well, I just think people are going to make their, find their own varieties of certain, their own variation. Well, that's and, what I mean. I mean yeah. inherent variation yeah. in that, and I guess that's a beautiful thing because it's it's like no one really has something better than another person, in my opinion. No, right? I totally agree. So we could really talk about that for a long time, I think. But well, that's what I mean by this plurality that exists right now. There is no one set of standards. There's no nobody is dictating them. You don't have, say, the critic of the New York Times or whatever, whoever the great critics are saying, let's just look at this. This is what's great. Let's not think about, you know, food trucks. We're just gonna go to these restaurants. You know, and that's that's like but we're still fighting it. Is education that you're talking about, at least visual literacy or education about keeping an open mind because I think right now, at least for food, people are still fighting against being open to different things. Really? Yeah. It's happening. People are more open than ever before, but it's still like, well, that Chinese restaurant can't be the best restaurant in New York City. I think that's still the prevailing wisdom. Well, there's a lot of people not taking other people's opinions, which seems fine to me. Like, you're going to fight about which is the best Chinese restaurant in New York. That is. That sounds like a, a well, frequent argument to me. Well, if somebody that, that used to be the argument in say 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, but okay. The but can the cuisine. Chinese restaurant be the best restaurant in New York City? And twenty years ago, it wasn't Chinese food. It was could Italian food be the best? Yeah, restaurant? right. I understand. And that. now it's just changing. And, and oh, I see what you're saying. Right. I thought there were people arguing about which was the best Chinese restaurant. But you're talking about what kind of? Yeah, one step above. In terms of the, the the argument pyramid, that what kind, is still, what kind of cultures can take the four stars? Yeah, and, the and, best and we're seeing that still. Like it's slowly changing, at least from a critical point of view, from magazines and the newspapers. Like, wait, I can't review this restaurant and say it's just cheap food. You know? Yeah. If it's good, it's good. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Other, Monetary value has no bearing on my. You know? Yeah. White tablecloths, forget it. Right. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Great Jones. Great Jones is a startup that makes high-quality cookware that's beautiful and affordable. Their pots and pans heat evenly, are perfectly weighted, they feel great in your hands, and have comfortable handles that don't get hot. It all looks great, too. If you want to upgrade your kitchen tools without spending a fortune, I highly recommend Great Jones. Their products start at $45, and a whole set costs $395. I'm tired of going to my friends' apartments and homes and seeing how they just sort of skimped out on their pots and pans. You can take care of all of that with a Great Jones set because I'm telling you from experience, they're high-quality cookware that's made accessible. I love the Duchess, which is their enameled cast-iron Dutch oven, and it's something that you can roast chickens in, you can make braises and stews, but what's best about it is one-pot cooking. You can take it from the oven and serve in it because it looks great. I like the Big Deal, which is sort of their big sort of stock pot, but it's light and very durable. And I love that for making big pots of pasta and spaghetti and stuff like that. 
One of my favorite, favorite pans is the Deep Cut. It's a custom hybrid between a deep saute pan and a skillet. And that's probably the one that is the workhorse in my kitchen because I've been, I've just been cooking a lot of asparagus in it. You can cook a lot of vegetables. You can roast meat in it. It's just a great saute pan. The small fry is my breakfast go-to. It is perfect for cooking eggs and it's not Teflon. It's their nonstick skillet. And I'm telling you, it's fantastic. I really use it. I use it all the time. So it's been a great joy to be able to work with something that my wife likes to work with as well, right? Because a lot of my professional tools, they're too lumbering and clunky. And my wife, Grace, loves to use the Great Jones pots and pans. So please invest in the Great Jones. I'm telling you, you're not going to be disappointed. So go to greatjonesgoods.com and use the code CHANG, C-H-A-N-G, at checkout for $25 off your next order. That's greatjonesgoods.com and use the code CHANG, C-H-A-N-G. It's a great gift. It's a great anniversary present. Invest in their pans. They're not going to let you down. I promise. And now, back to the show. We're still so far away, I think, from having complete acceptance. Is that still the case in art where people are rediscovering or discovering new things and the older viewpoints are being uh, open to these new things? You know what I mean? Like, let's just say uh, there's a some tiny town in China and now people are like, this is the greatest art we've ever seen. What do you think would be the old view of that, right? People would be like, no, that's not true. It can't be. Yeah, I can understand that point of view. And you will say, okay, let's see it. You know, put it on the international stage and let's see. Let's all But what if it was great and you saw it and it was like life-altering? Then I'd have to deal with that. I mean, the thing that I was going to say when you were talking about Korean ceramics, the things that changed me in the 70s was the realization of just about object art. I wasn't a great feminist thinking all these, you know, I, I was really happy to see art by women. But I was also realizing that a lot of different mediums were closed out of this discussion, that painting and sculpture were dominant. And there's a whole history of ceramics. It's worldwide. There's no culture that doesn't have great ceramics or great textiles. And these were sort of in a second or third class level to other things. So that starts to break it apart. And you know, it's just been this shattering of things. And I'm repeating myself. No, now. no, no. And I didn't know where I was going. Well, you're talking about Korean pottery, and I I wanted to add to that as well. Um, Again, I'm not an expert in it, but someone that's been, uh, the older I get, and I was very sort of militant anti-Korea for most of my life. I wouldn't say anti-Korean. I just still have problems with it. But I'm appreciating the history more. And I would say being more open to it than I ever have. Uh And there are very few things Korean can call their own, considering the entire history has been about enslavery and colonialism. And being ripped off. And being ripped off. And the weird thing is, is Korean pottery is truly the only thing that is better than anything else that's ever been yeah. made in Asia. And while I have a basic understanding of it, being able to read your review of it from the Met so many years ago, I was like, shit, how many other things in the world are exactly like this story. Are unknown. Completely unknown or written by someone with a total biasness towards it. So again, I I don't know where we're going to go with food, but 
I want to understand art. And again, I, I keep on thinking about Jerry's voice. It's like, you don't understand art. Could you, re- do you agree with them? Like, you can't understand art. Well, that's a kind of absolute statement. What I would think he meant is, yeah, you can't understand art in that every time you come back to it. If it's really good and you're really connecting, you're going to have a different, more enriched experience. And it's not going to necessarily come out in a verbally articulated way. You know, that you can't fix it. You, I mean, as in holding it down. That's one of the things about really substantial art is it has so many different points of entry for, for all different people. I just think that really good art feeds many different kinds of people, and it continues feeding them for generations. And whether or not they understand it, like, you know, the analogy I always make, I mean, the art food analogy, I think there are lots of really interesting things, if, and it would probably be more interesting between us if I knew more about food. But one thing I say when people start talking to me about, if, if you really want to understand the kind of nonverbal quality of art and of your experience of art, think about music. Think about the kind of subjective reaction to that and how you don't really know it. You don't know it in a structural sense. You don't know where it's coming, all its many sources. But you can feel feel it it in your body, and you can form an immediate opinion. And you usually usually aren't intimidated or uncertain of your judgment because you have this reaction. My feeling is that given time— Can art do that? Art does do that. You're just not used to—it's it's more difficult, okay? But I still think it's going on in your body. And if you learn—and learning about—one thing about learning about art is simply looking and listening, shutting up your head and listening to what is happening in, with you in a physiological, psychological way. Like, you know, like, why am I in—why do I stand in front of this painting and not that? You know, why do I— why does this just affect me? So where does it go back to something in my childhood? You know, what's it bringing up in me? Why do I hate this? And is it hate or is it an intense reaction? You know, that I that if I sort through, I'll find I'm kind of offended but excited. And, you know, that there's a much more complicated reaction behind that initial negativity. So many things to unpack there. Um, what if you look into something, and before I say that then, is that how, if I'm trying to look, look at art and to understand art from a proper point of view? There's no proper point of view, but there's ways that are easier. And, so how should I look at art? Well, I think you have to follow your eyes. And that, you know, it's like with the music, you follow your ears. Is this making your eye uncomfortable? I mean, music can be uncomfortable to listen to. Do you want to come back to this? And and. What exactly are you looking at in terms of a painting? Are you looking at this little bit of, you know, a cardinal's red cloak down in the corner? You know, is that it? I mean, the things about the thing about a lot of works of art is very few things are perfect. You know, so you you might like one thing that makes you think you like the whole painting. Well, it's more interesting to to try to differentiate and sort that out. But I just think you have to have open eyes. And the other thing is. You have to look. You have to go into museums and, and feel bad and feel like, I'm stupid, I can't see this. And you, you have to say, you know, maybe read labels. And you have to go into galleries and say, what's, I mean, this is what Clement Greenberg used to do. He's this very famous critic of linear, linear history um, who had a lot of power at one point. Um, but he would say, you can walk into a gallery, stand in the middle and turn around, you know, not, 
not too slowly, and you can know what's the best painting in the room. And I would say, I would extend that to say, you can know what's the best painting for you. You're not going to be establishing an absolute, but you, you can feel your eye. And it will probably be something about color and scale. It'll be something kind of abstract in the beginning. You know, like you walk into the Met and you look at the Bruegel harvest. You know, there's a huge slab of yellow, which is wheat being harvested. It's like butter. You know, it takes up kind of two-thirds of the painting right across the middle. And just just looking at that is a kind of experience that has nothing to do with language, but it's an, it's this incredibly kind of joyful entry into this really weird painting where guys are like lying around sort of, well, maybe having wet dreams. You don't quite know what's going on in those little pouches that they have, you know. Uh, what do they call Whatever. Some kind of... But what you're you know, describing... they're having lunch, they're sleeping. There's, there's just all this narrative going on around that. But what you're describing of how you look at art, yeah. and I'm not trying to say something that is uh, not uh, positive about current food criticism, because it's two different, obviously, mediums and two holes. I find that food criticism should be looking at food the way you look at art a little bit more then. Well, I'm sure they do, but the, but also it's incumbent upon food critics to kind of give you the whole package. So they're going to be talking about the wait staff, the noise level, you know, whether the presentation or the table is set elaborately or simply in a way that, all, you know, whether or not all the stuff around the food facil- facilitates the experience of the food. And then they're going to be like parsing the food in these. I mean, that's what I love. You know, as a critic, you can sort of read any form of criticism. And I can't. I, I don't consider myself at all a foodie, but just reading a critic making those distinctions of, you know, this sauce was great, this one had too much of that in it. That's just, I love to read something being taken apart like that. And you can find it in any kind of a review. And, you know, you have it in uh, sports writing. Mm. I mean, writing about baseball is really a kind of criticism. And I used to think, well, it's everything's kind of cut and dry. You have statistics. You have all these numbers that tell you exactly how good everyone is. But that's not the case. You can listen to sports radio. These guys are like arguing about everything, do you know? And a certain kind of, you know, combination of strengths and how that makes somebody stronger than be- a better player than somebody else. And it's, it's all opinion. Or is there a chance that you might ever review food then? Well, it would be pretty basic, but I mean, you have to keep in mind that Jerry and I are sort of foodaholics. I don't know if he said that to you. <laughs> I don't know if he brought that up. He didn't. But we're very cathected on food, and there are many, many foods that we cannot have in our refrigerators or they'll be consumed instantly. And they were very, it's very carefully controlled. And we have this kind of a set number of, in, of things that, that we buy all the time, like, I'm I'm mad for Brussels sprouts, you know. I just like there's so I have Brussels sprouts probably every day if I can, but it's limited. We're not we don't and we don't go to restaurants much. We go to dinner, but, but if, if, we, if it's not in our life. But if you put something in front of me, I will critique it for you from my own limited experience. But if the world of art is now post conceptual and ever yeah. it's like a total free for all. Shouldn't criticism reflect that too then? So you should be able to review anything as well? Well, it's getting a little too broad, but people have said that. It said like, well, could because I know I could never write fiction. I have to have something in front of me. You know, it could be luggage. 
I, I, I mean, the critical, your critical faculty is something that's really important to develop. And if you concentrate on one thing, it can be quilts, it can be bluegrass music. But if you understand the history and the different levels of achievement within that form, you can start moving around and applying it to other forms. Do you think that as an artist or possibly even a chef, then it is imperative to think or know how a critic would be critical? Well, I would assume that if you're an ambitious chef and you're starting a restaurant, you've read a fair amount of food criticism. Maybe starting with periodicals, but more complicated writing than going reading history. I mean, there's a lot of, of information there. So, but like a modern day artist today, they have a like an expert knowledge of everything that came before them. Do you think that's a required knowledge to be great? Well, I think you have to have knowledge of what came before you, so you don't just mindlessly repeat it. And a lot of the majority of art, probably like the majority of food, is made from what I call received ideas. There isn't new thinking in it. Do you know? And that's something that you learn to spot pretty easily. Like, I always say, if something interests me, the first thing I have to do is kind of see all the other artists that are, have influenced it and see if the artist who's made the work has actually done anything new with them. Like, you look at Matthew Barney, you're going to see Bruce Nauman. Well, he's completely different, but you can see how he comes from that. And then you're going to look at people who, are, who barely know who Bruce Nauman is but are redoing his work. So a certain kind of cosmopolitanism and level of information, I think, is is part of ambition. And you know, you don't you want to figure out your field so you can go in your idea of what forward is. Because the other thing we've been talking about all this revisionism and opening up and going back and how there's no structure, no linear structure of history or of the history of food. But I do think that people are hardwired for the new, you know? And it's just part of our culture. It's not imposed by critics. Jerry yeah. said the same thing. And yeah, that... he steals my ideas all the time. <laughs> he basically said that too. <laughs> I mean, my example, my example is when you look at Friends or Cheers or Lucy, and then you look at Arrested Development, you know, it's not like one is better than the other, but you know that Arrested Development is a kind of progress in terms of sitcoms. Right. That it has a kind of self-awareness and irony and, you know, I mean, people know that. People don't want to listen to covers of the Beatles songs all the rest of their life. They want somebody who's doing something different. And you can, the history of rock music is about people trying to find that. Is it rebellion? Well, part of it's rebellion, and part of it, I just think, is ambition, which is probably more important than talent, you know, that you just are determined. Judd was determined. To have the grit to... To make something that he didn't think had been made before. And it had, it it, it was made, and it had certain kinds of limits. You know, it it excluded a lot that other people now wanted to put back in. So, but really... I don't know, the whole thing of the drive for success and its psychological underpinnings and just about, it's all, it's much more about work than talent. And if you have an ambition, you're not going to be able to rest. Yes. 
if you, ha- <laughs> if you have to do something. And those are the moments I think that drive me or move me is when I see something in any walk of life where an individual has decided enough's enough. Whether I get there or not, whether uh, I fail, I have to fail. I'd rather fail than accept the status quo. Yeah, or make a complete fool of myself or whatever. And I can't explain for the life of me why that matters to me more than almost anything is I have to find those things and understand them. And that's why I think I tried to understand why food has changed or why, even though I know nothing about art, why a certain artist was like, well, I'm going to do it this way now. And maybe that's in the human condition or so. But well, that's what I mean, yeah. being hardwired for the new. I mean, I just think, and I think people who are artists, who are in any medium, are particularly driven. They they get You get an obsession. You kind of, you know, whether it's a superficial view or really a careful combing through of history, you get an idea of what what's out there, and you try to not do it again. So would you say it's just simply grit? Yeah. I really think it is. And I don't think it's, it's not conscious. It's not necessarily conscious. When people are driven to work, it's not like they, they are saying, oh, I have to, uh, you know, I should work now. There's some part of them is saying, you have to work or you're going to lose it. You know, you have to get in there and keep trying. After I did the podcast with Jerry and he was talking about how you guys and whether he was speaking for you or this is how you also independently yeah. believe, I don't know. But the sort of the the vicious cycle, the Sisyphean like uh, hell of uh, not doing your work and procrastinating and bitching and moaning about everything else except the work itself that you have to do. And you guys get up every day at 8.30 and stop your bitching and start writing. Well, he does. I I, I, Jerry has—we're all driven by terror to some extent, and Jerry's terror is really great because it makes him get to work. Mine stops me from working. So I'm I'm still dealing with it at this advanced age, you know, of of how procrastination gets in the way of my work. And sometimes I think, and I know I'm thinking writing when I'm, like, straightening my desk or vacuuming something. And other times it's just me being kind of avoiding that and like giving into a certain kind of OCD tendency I have. Do you know, like this morning, I had to sort out the book form from the Brooklyn Rail, from the New York Review of Books, from the London Review. Those are all periodicals that are basically the same size. But I wanted them, you know, together, (laughs) different issues together. And I thought... You know, and I realized I was kind of terrified about coming to do this and like putting off getting ready to leave. And I don't know, but 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 there's power in that procrastination, though. Well, something can happen in that procrastination. But the Times had a really good article on procrastination a couple of weeks ago that really helped me. It would be a little too personal to say how in this context, but really made me see certain things about it and how you have a tolerance for procrastination is a tolerance for not feeling good. When you know, when you sort of know what can make you better, feel better, which is actually hello, work working. We've been talking a little bit about revisionist history or looking at things in a different way, and one of the things that my conversation with you and uh, with Jerry sort of triggered was because I never heard anyone talk about it in the way that you guys have. I was like, maybe the whole idea of the pursuit of happiness is some conjured up Hallmark-like thing of being blissful and being 
content. Maybe the truth of happiness is working and suffering to get to some ephemeral place that will disappear immediately. Well, the pursuit of happiness is a is a phrase that I really think about a lot because it's in whatever it's in. The Declaration Bo- of Independence. De- Declaration of Independence. And I think it's an it's a a right. And I think that when you're working like that, like you just described, that's that's an attempt to kind of satisfy or ease a kind of discomfort. So that for me, the pursuit of happiness isn't about whether it's going to be fun to do or not. It might not be fun, but ultimately it will be extremely satisfying. And for me, the pursuit of happiness has to do with being able to discover and develop your creativity. And that, and I just think that this whole country is full of miserable people, depressed people, because they haven't allowed, they haven't been allowed to have the capacity to find out, find what it is in them that's really unique and really creative. And that's that's the fault of our public education system, that of a system where art and dance and music are eliminated before anything else, where there's now an emphasis on science and math over liberal arts. I mean, you... You know, there are two things that happen when you look at any kind of art, eat any kind of food that's outside your norm. Do you know? Mm. You're learning tolerance You're because you're suddenly learning that there's more than one way to do things and that there's a whole lot of other stuff, different ways of doing that outside, and the, whole, and the world is full of them. So you're being humbled. Tolerance is, is a form of being humbled by other people, by people who are different, by different kinds of achievements. And the other thing that you're learning is what speaks to you and what 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 you can are exposed to where you say, that's what I want to do. That's it. And, and you, you read about this happening with all kinds of creative people, like my mother took me to the ballet when I was six. You know, I saw a play. I, I heard opera. All of these things, people see these things as recreation. And that's why we're, that's one of the reasons we're, that's like a part of the reason we're in this mess is, is a recreation or worse, something to be feared, culture. But culture is essential because of that initial thing that it does for people. It's a way of knowing yourself. Where did we go wrong? Right. Other than the pursuit of knowing yourself, knowing thyself, what was that? Socrates, right? Like, how did we go wrong? Is it because of capitalism? Is it because of money? Because I, you know, growing it's up, values in, and fear. Fear People, of what? Fear of anything different. Creativity is an amazing force. I mean, can you imagine what this country would be like if everyone's creativity were released and everyone were kind of happy because of being able to fulfill that creativity? We would be a different nation. Now, I always say that. I say that in particular, like architecture. You know, we we live in pre- pretty ugly surroundings. This, we could circle back to the Hudson Yards on this point. But if people had more education, more visual education, architecture design would be in a completely different state in this country. You know, Louis Kahn, who is a great architect, had went to... A school in Philadelphia, it might have been a kind of school for bright kids, but he was he lived in a ghetto. 
Jewish ghetto, he had a teacher in elementary school, I think, who taught architecture. So he was able to get some kind of thread of what was inside him and follow that. That's always an amazing story to me. There's very few things happen like that. I rem- there's this painter, but, you know, it can be simpler. There's this painter named Elizabeth Murray, whose work I really love. And one of the most vivid stories she writes about is being in art class in, I don't know, first or second grade. And her teacher sits down beside her and takes a red crayon and just starts going back and forth and back and forth and filling this whole piece of paper with red and how she just couldn't believe it. And it shaped what she went on to do. She thought she was going to be a commercial artist. She thought she was going to be a cartoonist. And then finally, she got got around to painting. You said something earlier about how the education system has now veered towards science and, you know, well, rational is, thought. This is, this is uh, you know, probably happening more in colleges, which is really, you know, again, I just think it's, you take a literature class, it's not recreation. You're learning about the world and you're learning the opposite, which is about yourself. And you're learning to think. Like reading novels is a way of learning to think about the world. Like so, the greatest thing that probably I ever did was to study religion. And everyone's like, you're an idiot. How's anyone going to employ you? It didn't matter. My grades are terrible anyway. I was going to be employed in a traditional fashion. <laughs> but but you, had an, you had this interest that you wanted to pursue. And yeah, I mean, because it was sort of impressed upon me in a young age, but it caused me to think critically. I learned how to think critically. Yeah. And uh, I learned just how little I knew about anything. And it gave me sort of a world of view about things. And I, I can't help but think that any success I've had as a chef, with it, which was a lot of luck, a lot of it has to stem with the fact that I studied stuff that told me, people told me, don't study that. You know? Yeah. And I've always just sort of embraced being a contrarian maybe because of that. And I just want people to feel that they can do anything and realize the only thing that's really bad is you will die, but you're going to die anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so what are you saving everything up for? Well, it's one thing to know that you're saving everything up for something like this grand success you're going to have. But most people don't have any idea of saving anything. You know, and most, and that's one of the reasons I think you have the rise of the right, because what happens when you don't gain some knowledge of your own misery is that you try to make other people miserable. You try to control them. And when I hear you or Jerry, you know, you guys talk about happiness in very different ways. He's a much happier person than I am. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's the thing is like, what if happiness is not the hallmark idea of happiness? What if... Happiness is the struggle. Well, I think there's a combination of struggling and happiness that you want, you know, and that that you have, and it kind of goes in cycles. My cycle happens to be weekly. I mean, I go through hell and I get to be in print and that makes me pretty happy, you know, but it's not, happiness is a really complicated thing. It involves satisfaction. It involves all kinds of but stuff. But you guys are, seem to me so actually happy again and content in the fact that you guys are pursuing what you want to do well that's okay i'll go with that definition but i I wouldn't say i'm happy you know no i'm a miserable person me too <laughs> <laughs> you know but that's what i don't know you, you just are built a certain way i think i'm 
doing what I was built to do. I'm really lucky, and that makes me really happy. And like, But how miserable would you be had you decided not to do what you're doing right now? Well, if I could have been around art, I could have, I, I could, I would have found another form of happiness. I don't think I, what I have and what, what I would think that you have, being able to write is that I have a form, I have an idea that I've done my work. I don't know what else I could have done, actually. Because but you would have I, been in the world of art somehow, yeah, some but way. Sometimes I think, wow, I'd like to be a dealer, or I'd like to be a curator, but I really think of those as different forms, you know, and I'm a very solitary person, and all those other people have to deal with every other line of work in the art world. But you have to imagine that um, there have been people in your situation with similar sort of circumstance where they were like, I want to be an art, but I have to be a lawyer instead. And if you were a lawyer, how miserable would you be? Yeah, no, I I, I didn't have the grades to do anything else but come to the New York art world and <laughs> try to figure it out after college. But... Um, I'm not talking about being happiness, happy. I'm talking about some big idea of happiness. That And yeah, you do have to struggle for it. And yeah, you will be miserable maybe on a regular basis. Or you'll be, you know, I don't know, some fantastic, you know, hit maker in music. But even nobody is really happy. So how do you tell that, that journey of grit to someone that is trying to like figure out their own voice? Because I think by nature, we want to, be allergic to pain, right? No one wants to do the painful thing over and over and over again. Yeah, but I think if you're determined and you have that ambition, you un- you start to understand. And you have to have some kind of success experience. Like when I am starting to write and I think, you know, I can't do this. I cannot do this. I have nothing to say. I do have an experience of succeeding that that's a phase and that there's it's the beginning of the process and there's something else. So you... There are so many things that you get to know as you develop. You get to know yourself. You understand this thing called your process, which I think can be modified to some extent. I'm never going to write like Jerry, but I am going to uh, reduce my procrastination time. You know, I have done that and will continue. So I think, I, you know, you just have to, it's like a combination. Know yourself, know everything, know, know everything else or know what you can get. If you're involved with food, eat, read. If you're involved with art, read, look. But this struggle— But there there are things that will drive you in all these different directions. Is the great art that is meaningful to you, that you love, are are these artists in this moment where they're trying to—they're all in that same struggle in their own way? I think to some extent most artists have a pretty miserable time. I'm sure Jerry said this because we both say it is, if you can be anything but an artist, be it. Because it takes such a commitment, and I, I, I don't think most people who who are who think they're artists actually have any idea of what the commitment and the pain is. I say that all the time about yeah. being a cook or a chef. There's a lack of understanding of what it takes to get there, and you can see it in the work, because the work is dealing, as I said, with received ideas, is dealing with familiar conventions. There's all kinds of room for originality. Even within a familiar convention, you can see someone do something fresh with that. It's not huge originality. It's maybe small. Mm. But it, you know, that's what earlier on, it, is, it still gives something a kind of, gives what you do a kind of integrity. 
Um, I, I have this barbecue expert, probably one of the great barbecue experts, masters ever, Aaron Franklin, very, very famous guy in Austin, Texas. I actually find it so remarkable that he was able to, uh, if you eat his food, you're going to know it's his, even though he's cooking with the exact same ingredients as everyone else, salt, smoke, and meat. I, it actually moves me when I'm like, how the hell did he find a way to put his stamp on something that everyone can do? And that's the shit that gets me so excited. Yeah. I mean, that's a, a basic thing about creativity. You know, and you know it because you've eaten, like, I don't know how much barbecue you've eaten in your life. A lot. Yeah. And I would probably eat it and have some inkling that it's amazing. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to argue for it or tell you why or break it down in any way. So it would be a much less sophisticated reaction. But, you know, this goes back also to talking— this has to do with his instincts, his background. He grows up in what the heart of barbecue country, or one of Grew them. Grew up a musician as well. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but if 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 I if I'm looking at the art world and I'm seeing similarities and patterns that can overlap, uh, if this is like a Venn diagram with food, then one of the most annoying questions I think a chef gets, besides being compared to rock music, which is the dumbest thing in my opinion. Yeah. Um, I think there are some similarities. Uh, but to me, the, the question that most chefs have an allergic reaction to is it artistry? Is it an art form? I don't have an answer because I don't want to sound like a pretentious asshole either, but I don't know. More and more I'm, I'm wondering, is today's sort of world of food so hard to understand for anyone because it's actually wound up becoming an art form. Which you don't think is necessarily a good thing, or you think... Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm too too involved with it to, to be separate from it. No, but see, like, Adria is like, that's definitely an art form. It's difficult. It's challenging. You, you don't want to eat that way every day. You know, it's very esoteric. But so if there can be something... Like that. The same sort of uh, merger of ideas and cultures and, quite frankly, rebellion from chefs matches up almost perfectly with the artistry of the past 100 years in, like, the visual form. Mm -hmm. And that sort of freaks me out. (laughs) I think it's all parallel. It's all related. You know, that what's happening in food and society and art, it's all tied together it's not there aren't people it has to be so we're in a weird place then would you say chefs are artists if you go to japan and you go to kyoto that's definitely which i haven't done by the way although i've been to japanese to different japanese restaurants in tokyo yeah you're you know you're in the presence of a kind of art and you know that the person who's making it and serving it to you has been through a whole kind of training. Well, that's that's what you could say is obvious, but I think it it's obviously art. But I think that the potential exists on all fronts. I mean, really good food, you're going to have an an experience that's like art. I had a I had some wine uh, at a dinner um, that was that was cooked by a pretty famous chef whose name I don't remember. <laughs> but he, the food was very good. It was actually a dinner. It was a Judd Foundation dinner. 
I mean, Judd was incredibly involved with food. Um, the food was amazing, but what I remember is this, the most amazing red wine I've ever had. And, like, I knew. I'd hate to be that chef right now. Well, I mean, I'm the least. He, no, no, no. I'm the least thing he should be worrying about. But, I mean, he just, he just completely blew my idea of wine, you know, apart. But there's merger, right? Like, there's, is it possible then, since I'm seeing more and more artists, like, I, I walk by uh, Walls A in the West Village, and there's a giant Schnabel painting in there. And, yeah. And I, I remember that I, uh, you know, the Seagram's building had potentially Rothko's uh, paintings well, that didn't they, ever air. They didn't air. make it, but yeah. there was the Picasso. Right. The, the curtain. Which is now gone. But, which is now, yeah. Um. You know, that's probably one stage of it. And then, like, I read the other day that Larry Gagosian is opening up a restaurant with one of the great chefs in Los Angeles, Evan Funky. And it's going to be, uh, I don't know because I haven't seen it, a restaurant slash gallery that I think is going to be hard to determine which is which, potentially. Yeah, but that's kind of, that's just kind of mixing things together. That doesn't necessarily mean the food will be art. It means that the whole thing will have a kind of aesthetic component. You know, I still like to think you could get food that's just as good and complicated and radical from a food truck. Do you know? Well, that was the big revolution. Yeah. But so, but th this is just giving it a very specific context. So you're going to come there, you're going to be in the art world, and you're going to eat the food and argue about what's on the walls and or discuss it. Or and, buy it. Yeah, I'm sure that I, was the whole thing. I... But, I mean, this has already been, like, Hauser and Wirth has hotels. They're a big gallery. They're kind of one of the big four on a level with Gagosian. Money and food has changed it for mostly, I think, I don't know, good and bad. But that's the one thing I continue to look at in art and get a better understanding of, whether it means an expensive painting doesn't necessarily mean it's great, but it just means... It's considered great by the person who's putting up the money and... You know, and it might be considered great by the person who's selling it. Sometimes you don't know. And more or less, I think a good percentage of what we feel is good in food is still under that sort of premise. And I'm trying to figure out what is actually good now. You mean without the, without thinking about the money component? Money or even, weirdly enough, criticism. Yeah. Right? So— You can't figure out what is good now without doing some criticism. But anyway. How come? Right? Like, if I taste something without any knowledge, this goes back to sort of what we were talking about with Judd before. Is it good? Or is it, do I need some knowledge to know it's good? Well, your mouth is going to give you an opinion. You know, you're going to have an experience. And you're just going to have an automatic opinion, whether it's based, like I was saying about barbecue, whether it's based on real experience and real knowledge. You know, you might say to the, I might say, you wouldn't say like, that's amazing. And the person next to you say, well, that's nothing. You know, wait till I show you this. But for that moment, that's an idea of something being really good and you're being completely unfamiliar with it. I mean, I had that experience in the 70s with outsider art. I wasn't really aware of it. And all of a sudden, you know, in the late 70s and early 80s, I became of this whole, this aware of an alternate art world and art history. And it just completely blew my mind. Well, I didn't know anything. I just saw a few things that were like, that's really good. You know, is there more like that? And I can't imagine what you would taste that you could isolate in that manner. 
You couldn't isolate it from the food. I don't think you could isolate it from the context. But still, you can't figure out what is good. That's a definition of an opinion. Figuring out what is good for you. That's why I had to talk to you. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I took enough of your time and just wanted to thank you for it. A very long conversation. This is fabulous, Dave. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Roberta. Well, that was my conversation with the co-chief art critic of the New York Times, Roberta Smith. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Very, very honored to have her on this podcast. And Jerry's right. She is way smarter and more talented than you, Jerry. I love you both. Gave me a lot to think about, and I have more questions than the answers. And again, hopefully we will continue to talk to Roberta down the road. Yeah, and I realized that it could have gotten a little bit too heady, maybe a little bit too RT or intellectual. And uh, I'm trying to, to bridge the gap here a little bit more about art and food, because growing up in the restaurant universe, if you ever said you wanted to look at food as art, it was not received very kindly. And hopefully we can be a little bit more open to understanding the culinary world a little bit differently. And to reiterate, I think that one of the problems about the restaurant world and the culinary world at large is that we're only focusing on recipes. We're only focusing on techniques and ingredients. And um, the life behind it and the understanding that sort of weaves it all together has been woefully underrepresented and not thought through. So hopefully this is just the beginning of a conversation. And uh, again, I'm struggling and I'm trying my best to do this, but at the very least, it gives me some understanding and a better understanding of of art and uh, its relation to food. And uh, when I talk to someone like Roberta Smith, who I don't believe is just an art critic, I think that she understands humanity and culture. Um, it can't be bad for me or anyone that's listening. I don't believe that's possible. But I get into a debate with myself uh, more often than not about what is good criticism. I know that a lot of critics that are former critics that I can talk to, right, because I try not to talk to any current food critic, is about taking a position that is from a consumer's point of view. And um, it's very hard to be a food critic. It's very hard to cover something that is ephemeral, that is only good in the moment and that no one else can really share. And that's good and bad for both the diner and for the chef, the subject of the criticism. I guess I'm wondering what does food criticism look like moving forward? And are there new ways to approach it? And do you have to be a food critic to cover food? Could it be anyone that covers culture? Could they potentially cover food and vice versa? Could food critics cover other parts of culture? Because this all falls under criticism at large. And one of the reasons why I think we should expand the definition of potential criticism and what we cover is that it's just too hard, right? Like you cannot be an expert on everything. Even as a chef, I know so little about Mexican food, even though I think I know a lot, like to truly be an expert in it would be impossible and French food and Japanese food. And I'm Korean and I've grown up in Korean food and I'm still learning tremendously delicious new things. And um, it's not the same way. Like if you were a critic of the literary arts or theater or movies, you can consume anything almost 
in some period of time that you can't do that with food. There are physical barriers and financial barriers of entry to even doing so. So I think it's a really interesting time to be a food critic, especially since everyone has opinion with all the social media and the democratization of how judgment in food is received and distributed. It's uh, more important than ever, I think, to have critics and to have a voice of reason. But how that has evolved over the years, the conversation that these critics have about how to judge food, I think, is internally interesting to me. And um, a critic and its relationship to the city that they cover, a critic and to the national sort of process, to the global process of covering food, it's not easy. And uh, there's a lot of tension, obviously, but uh, it's something I want to better understand. One day it would be great to speak to someone like Pete Wells or Ryan Sutton or Adam Platt or to the new journalists, uh, critics that cover stuff at the LA Times or the San Francisco Chronicle. There are some great critics out there, and I don't think they're just covering food. I do think they're covering culture. So um, maybe down the road we'll be able to find some way to keep the Chinese wall up and to talk to them in some interesting, meaningful way to better bridge the gap between how a critic covers things. And and, um, having been the recipient of some bad reviews and some great reviews, there are a lot of questions I want to ask, and they're not always going to be easy, I don't think, to answer or to ask. Anyway, I'll shut up about this. I just think that there's a lot more to answer about food criticism. I want to get into some Ask Dave at MajordomoMedia.com questions. I have one that I want to answer because I think it is pretty straightforward. It's by Peter Mueller. In one of the Unjo Park pre-opening diaries of Cowie episodes, parentheses, what a great conversation you had with her. I wish her all the best. So do I. There was an almost offhanded mention that Korean cuisine in Sydney is constrained by two waves of immigration. Any chance you can explain that in more detail? Well, thank you for sending in that question, Peter. I am not a sociological immigration expert, but having spent a considerable amount of time in Sydney, Australia, and everything is so far away in Sydney, by literally distance, things can grow almost like a different island, the Galapagos. It evolves at a different pace. And it's almost in a bubble because it's so hard to get to. And when I basically lived on and off in in Australia from 2009 to like 11, spending a lot of time there, going back frequently throughout the years, noticing that while there are actually some very good modern Korean restaurants in Sydney. Now, when I first lived there and opened up a restaurant there, I was shocked at how, I wouldn't say it's not the word basic, but how the Korean food, whether it's Korean barbecue or restaurants, or even like there, there, there's an area called Chatswood where a lot of Korean people live. The food there, which is also also interspersed with some of the finest Chinese food you'll find anywhere in the world. The Chinese food in Australia is tremendous, particularly in the suburbs of Australia in Sydney. And um, the Korean population that sort of lives in the suburbs of Australia have tremendously delicious Korean food. You have places that are just make banchan and a variety of Korean restaurants. But the reality is it's like they were all very, very traditional. There is almost... It was almost to me like it was stuck in the 1970s that when they immigrated to Australia, the Koreans immigrated to Australia, they they kept it close to the vest that when you go to another country that is far away from Korea to Australia, is not very close. It's still about 
a 10, 11 hour flight, that you want to make sure that you are preserving nostalgia, that you're not changing it. And I found that many of the restaurants that make Korean food, how a lot of them have their own farms and they're growing the vegetables that they couldn't get in Australia. And they're trying to make it almost a facsimile. And while that's fantastic, it's strangely like a a weird bubble to me. I've spoken to some people that have been to North Korea. My wife, Grace, has actually been to North Korea way back when. And you talk to people that visit and they eat the food there and how it's different because it hasn't changed and how the Korean dialect, I guess the best way to describe the food is maybe not the food itself is how dialect can remain the same and it doesn't change. And when I talk to people that I go to North Korea, they'll tell me that their dialect is is sort of similar to the food in the sense that it hasn't changed. It's sort of been stuck in time. And that I guess everyone else in Korea has developed almost like a patois that's different because it's evolved and it's changed and how it sounds is different. And the same thing is true to me when I go to Sydney. It's like, I can't better describe it, but it's like eating food that tastes like I've gone back in time. And again, that's changing. There are some great modern restaurants, less so than I know. I don't know Melbourne that well, but in Sydney, there are a handful of new restaurants that are doing very different things, but it's taken a considerable amount of time. And uh, I wonder what that's like. Maybe it's like, I would I would love to know what food in like uh, the Amish country must be like, or Mennonite country or villages where food just remains the same. And that sort of is the feel that I have. And, um, you know, I don't know too much about modern immigrant populations to Sydney, Australia, but I do think that it's changing. But it was very interesting for me to see that. And and I'd argue that the place where you can get the most progressive and different food is actually Seoul, Korea. There are There's so much innovation there because they're not beholden to preserving because there's other places in Korea that do preserve traditional Korean food. And then like I go to a place like LA and you see a different kind of amalgamation of Korean food. You have some places that do keep it very traditional. And then you have other places that are evolving and it's changing. And and it's fascinating to see because you're able to have this collision of Korean culture with everything else. And the best example is what Roy Choi was able to do with Kogi taco trucks and how it merged Korean food with his environment of growing up and having street food culture and Chicano culture. And it tastes something like that just tastes like LA. And I think that by not having a constant wave of immigrants throughout Australia's time over the past 30, 40 years, or as many as sort of LA might get, you need to sort of refresh in and get sort of, I would say, new blood to make food modern. And uh, this is me being an armchair sociologist, anthropologist. I just think that there's something there and um, there's power in immigration and there's also something beauty in preserving. So nostalgia is important and also destroying nostalgia is important if you want to have something new and different. So there, I said something that I should have said in the top of my long-winded answer to your question, Peter. So I will shut up. Thank you for listening to this podcast. And again, to Roberta Smith for her insights into art and food. And maybe food is art. I don't know. We will talk about more art later this week. Give us five stars. However, you rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, you name it. Thank you guys. Take it easy.